Welcome to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. In this podcast series, every two weeks, host Audrey Dove shares with you a new topic related to innovation and its impact for the legal world, with a special focus on intellectual property. My guests today are Luke Dembowski and Jim Pastore, partners at the law firm Dubois & Plimpton in the U.S. Luke co-shares its cybersecurity and data privacy practice. After years working on cyber issues, mostly as a prosecutor with the U.S. Department of Justice, he joined three years ago the firm in Washington, D.C. Jim is an expert in cybersecurity practice based in New York. He also spent years in the U.S. Department of Justice prosecuting cyber crimes. They will show how connected devices and more generally Internet of Things solutions increase cybersecurity and privacy threats. And what are the legal and practical solutions? Internet of Things, wearables, smart houses, connected cars. We now hear about these technologies and their promising potential in our life on a daily basis. However, most of us do not necessarily grasp very well the broad ecosystem they rely on and the variety of issues they deal with from a legal perspective. What are the legal concerns these innovations immediately trigger in your mind? The range of legal issues to give a broad uh, overview to start our conversation include privacy issues. We've already seen some cases by U.S. regulators dealing with those issues. We'll get into those, I'm sure, in a few minutes. Safety issues that are prominent when you talk about things like connected vehicles, for example. There's a very active hacking community out there, both criminal hackers and government hackers and the surface area created by connected devices presents security risks that could also lead to legal liability down the road. Those big three buckets, first, privacy. In other words, what are they collecting and what are people doing with that? Second, straight up safety, because we now have kinetic effects to hacking. It's no longer just bits and bytes on a computer screen, but there's real-world consequences. These devices are connected, and there's a hacker who's able to get into them. Uh, and then the third is the ability to harness these devices in ways that they were not intended, for example, to join them together in what's called a botnet uh, and perhaps launch uh, attacks or harness their computing power. Users are generally well inclined to share lots of personal data when they can draw an immediate benefit out of it. Think Amazon's Alexa, smart fridges, smart retail, such as in-store marketing notifications on smartphone based on geolocation and purchase history. However, users do not necessarily expect this information to be shared and used for other purposes. What are the risks uh, related to sharing as much information? And what are the damages that can result from broad sharing practices for any given individual? Yeah, so there was a pretty frightening article in the New York Times that detailed a number of applications that, according to the Times article, would tell people that they were collecting their data for one reason, 
but then they would then sell that location data out, uh, basically out the back door. And so, for example, it might say, we're going to use your, your location data so that we can provide customized feeds to you about sports teams or events that you might be interested in. In other words, if you're in New York like we are, you might be interested in a particular hockey team or a particular basketball team. They would claim, the app would claim, that it was capturing your location information for that purpose. And it turned out, according to this New York Times investigation, that applications were selling the data. And if you knew a little bit about someone, you were able to get pretty detailed uh, information about their movements. For example, what uh, the Times reporters did is they focused in on Gracie Mansion, where the mayor of New York City lives, and they were able to track uh, what appeared to be either the mayor or someone closely associated with the mayor's cell phone. Just to add a couple of points there, Audrey, just as it could be as simple as knowing that someone is not at their home when the home could be burglarized. Um, that's one possibility. Uh, it could also be learning details about a person that are highly personal and could be used to craft the perfect phishing email. There's one other example that's really chilling, and I'm going to ask Jim to say a word about this in a second, is that he prosecuted one of the landmark cases about this kind of activity involving activating web cameras of young women in the United States. The particular software had the frightening name of Black Shade. And it was what's known as a remote access tool. And it was able to do a number of things. Some of them were fairly juvenile. For example, if you were on your computer, they could turn the volume all the way up and start playing music on your computer. But a little more chilling was that they could turn on the web camera, as Luke mentioned, and they could capture people in private moments. And then they could also open a chat window, uh, which you were unable to close. And you could uh, essentially extort someone by saying that you had captured uh, intimate pictures of them and then either demanding money or, in many cases, the creeps who were using the software would actually demand more pictures or that form particular acts so that they could record them. Uh, and then they would either sell the pictures or keep them for themselves. And so that was a, a case that actually had a, a happy ending because there was a global effort. Uh, 19 different countries participated in arresting more than 90 individuals who had downloaded, used, or created this software. And Is it the end of privacy to a certain extent? You know, it's interesting because on the one hand, these are scary stories. On the other hand, uh, anyone who's used uh, an app to get around traffic uh, realizes that there are enormous benefits to sharing this information. So to me, it really comes down to a question of control. Uh, do you know what people are doing with this information? And I would suspect that there's a fair number of people who frankly would say, I, it doesn't bother me so much if people know where I am on any given day, because what I do is frankly just not that interesting. And I'd gladly uh, trade that uh, in exchange for being able to you know, get around traffic. I think there are other people that the calculus would come out differently, but I think none of those people can make a fully informed decision if they think they're sharing information for one reason, but it's in fact being used uh, in a different way. Cyber attacks have risen a lot recently, both in number and in nature, to the point of disrupting entire companies, essential infrastructures, such as airports or even elections, 
do you think the booming of connected devices and more generally IoT solutions has triggered an increase both in cybersecurity threats and technologies by enlarging the potential attack surface for hackers? In short, Audrey, uh, the answer is yes. It's a huge expansion of the potential surface area, not only surface area to attack, but as we saw in 2016, surface area that can be taken over by hackers and used to attack companies and individuals. And I'll give you a specific example. Jim mentioned botnets earlier. And just in case any listeners aren't familiar with that, it's essentially where hackers use malicious software to take over a portion of the person's computing power. So it's as if your computer is reporting secretly to a second master. And so there are botnets that are armies, large armies of these compromised computers, almost always unknown to the user or the real owner of the computer. The computer is reporting to a command and control computer, what we call a C2, that the hacker controls. And if the hacker has thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps even millions of these devices, reporting to them, they have a powerful weapon. And one of the things these weapons can be used to do is flood a company's website with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of requests at the same time and cause the website to crash, to overflow the ability of the site to respond to the number of packet requests, requests for information, and to stop functioning. We call this a denial of service attack. We saw this in 2016 with a botnet called Mirai, which effectively used malware to go out and collect around 11 million different computers, routers, lots of things that were not just ordinary laptops and computers, but they were devices in people's homes and in their companies, copiers, routers, cameras, uh, all of these things that had IP addresses with default passwords that no one changed, something that was easy for the hackers to know or guess, that malware would take root and cause that device to report back to the hackers. One of the more frightening aspects has been with respect to medical devices. This is, again, one of those situations where a trade-off might have unintended consequences. So if you were to have a pacemaker installed, clearly benefits to being able to have someone, if you're having a heart episode, essentially be able to shock your heart back into rhythm uh, remotely or even help resuscitate you if you've had a heart attack. On the other hand, if a good actor can do that remotely, that also means a bad actor can do it remotely. So what are the legal weapons, uh, to use your word, Luke? Yeah, well, to build on what Jim just said about medical devices, one issue or threat is in the regulatory space. So the FDA or the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is very focused on medical device cybersecurity issues and privacy issues as well. In 2018, um, the FDA issued uh, guidelines on the pre-release of medical devices into the market. And these are effectively voluntary guidelines, but the bottom line is if you don't follow them, you're less likely to have your device approved for market if you haven't dealt with design, 
labeling, documentation issues is a legal matter and as a technical and safety matter, the FDA will not approve the device. Um, it's quite clear. The other thing that I would add is there's also the individuals who are affected by the potential security vulnerabilities. So there's a very high profile case in the United States against Fiat Chrysler. And this stems from an episode where a couple of security researchers were able to demonstrate that they were able to take control of a vehicle remotely, uh, not connected to the vehicle from their laptops. And they were able to do a number of things. They were able to turn the music on uh, in the uh, vehicle. They were able to cut off the engine and stop the brakes from functioning. And so this caused uh, Fiat Chrysler to issue a recall in which they issued a security patch for a number of vehicles. And the people who own those vehicles have sued. And that case has been working its way through the U.S. court system. And those individuals are seeking large damages. We've seen an increase in litigation from individuals whose uh, devices are not functioning in the ways that they're expecting and whose private data is being exposed in ways that they don't anticipate. Do you think privacy and cybersecurity concerns are now integrated in the design of Internet of Things devices from the outset of their conception? The regulation is taking off in this area in Europe and the U.S. The biggest event ever in privacy law uh, occurred um, a little, you know, early last year. The European General Data Protection Regulation mm -hmm. came into effect, and it sets very strict privacy rules, and not specific to connected devices, but in general. Um, it, it speaks to what are you collecting? How are you getting consent from consumers? Why are you collecting it? What's your legal basis to handle and process it? With whom are you sharing it? What vendors are you using? In the U.S. now, there's a very similar law, very aggressive law in California set to take effect next January that's quite similar. And so the tide in the regulatory space is very much headed to stricter privacy controls. Some industries, whether it's cybersecurity or privacy, have tried to be ahead of the regulators by being proactive. And I think that's a great strategy. I'll give you a leading example I'm aware of is the automotive industry has formed an engineering group and set very high standards right away on their own to try to convince regulators and governments in general that they are responsible and they have their customers' interests first. And they're putting those things ahead to try to be in front of legislation or regulation that, that they don't want to live with. It's not done properly. You just mentioned GDPR, Luke. Uh, do you already see its impact on your clients? Yeah, definitely. It's been a huge lesson, especially for U.S. companies. I, my own view is that Europe has been ahead of the U.S. on privacy issues, at least awareness of privacy, and the view of it as a right and not just something to trade like a commodity. Although I will say that the European landscape is behind, in my view, several years behind on cybersecurity issues. So I think we both have a lot to learn from one another. Um, the U.S. is certainly learning from GDPR. U.S. companies are very focused on it. How do we move data? What are we collecting? How long are we storing it? How are we protecting it? I do think it is a two-way street. On the one hand, U.S. companies are receiving quite an education on things that 
EU companies have been dealing with for a fair amount of time because much of the GDPR is not necessarily net new, not necessarily things that uh, EU companies are surprised by. In fact, it's things that they've been dealing with for a while. On the other hand, the GDPR also now imposes notification obligations on EU companies when they have a data breach. And previously, those notification obligations were not uniform across Europe, uh, whereas in the U.S., we've been quite familiar with the concept that if you have a data breach, you're going to have to notify uh, either the individuals affected, regulatory authorities, uh, or both. Users of IoT solutions and devices include individuals, but also businesses, such as insurance companies, airline, etc. What would you recommend to business clients when choosing and implementing an IoT solution critical to their business? And what are the best practices in terms of privacy protection and data security that companies should require from their IoT service providers? Sure, Andre. On the well, on the manufacturer side, I think it's very key to have transparency. What are we going to collect from the customer? What will we do with it? The less we surprise customers and regulators, the better. The more transparent we are about our practices, and really to Jim's point in the beginning, giving the options where possible of control to the consumer. Um, I think having clear notice of what you're going to do, which goes to transparency, getting informed consent so that the customer knows exactly what what they're bargaining for when they allow you to take their data and, and use it. Is it worth it to them to trade that for the types of life enriching things that we talked about, geolocation, being able to know where their child's cell phone is, for example, all the things that we depend on, is it worth it to them um, in that situation? There's some key things that the manufacturers and providers can do and that the companies and individuals consuming should ask about or be aware of or research for themselves. One is, has there been testing, thorough testing of the product? You know, we speak about penetration testing. It's where the good guy hackers that you hire or that are on your company technical team try to see if they can break into the device or the computer, you know, supporting the device. Could a bad guy take control? Let's practice it, pretend we're the bad guys, and run all sorts of tests on this. The other thing is if you expand more broadly from that, we should do a risk assessment to see you know, what is the risk of this device in this particular environment. A home is one type of environment. A hospital network is another type of environment. So we need to make risk-based choices whether we're the designer or whether we're the one buying or using the product, it has to be based on the level of risk involved. And to understand that, a risk assessment is important. And what about training people to use the devices? If you're a hospital and you're taking in a medical device, you want to make sure you've gotten thorough training of your people on how exactly to configure things and use it to avoid security issues. And then the last thing I'll say is monitoring the products through their life cycle. How long until we need to patch it? Will we act, be able to access it to upgrade it? 
Is it going to remain in someone's body or in a particular company network and not be able to be upgraded? So we need to take all of these things into account as a practical matter. What should consumers do to protect their information? What practical things could be done? One of the key things, Audrey, is to understand what you're signing up for. Um, people, we're in an age where there's an app for everything, literally, as they say. And if you don't know what that app does or what it collects and you haven't bothered to pay attention to the terms of service, or maybe even better yet, do a little bit of independent research, you may not know where your data is going. Then there's just being prudent about what you put out there publicly about yourself. You know, many of us, and our families have social media pages, Facebook or whatever, a Twitter account. Think uh, long and hard about whether you want to control access to that. You know, keep, keep it within a tight circle of people that you trust. Or if it's a broader circle, maybe it's a corporate account, be very careful about the kinds of things that you say publicly. And of course, as a parent uh, myself with two teenagers, Um, I have to be savvy enough to ask the questions about the types of apps and technologies that they're using. We can make the most of these wonderful technologies while reducing the risks. I'll add two things just very practical on a security standpoint. Number one, if there's a default password on a device, when you plug it in, change it. Uh, if you don't know whether there's a default password, figure that out uh, and change it. And then second, when you get those notifications, To update your uh, your device or your application or your software, uh, do it. That it's shocking the number of hacks that are really attributable to updates simply not being applied. And the bad guys know about these vulnerabilities. They find them out and they exploit them. And if you can keep your software up to date, you're actually doing a lot uh, to close off some of the most common ways that bad guys are able to get in, take control of your devices, do things that uh, the devices are not intended to do. To conclude, tell us your secrets. How do you keep up with tech innovation? If you were to give our listeners one advice uh, or a source, a book or a publication, what would it be? Yeah, mine's Ars Technica. I really like mix of articles. They almost always have a deep dive on the technical aspects of vulnerabilities, which I think is just fascinating. So they usually have sort of an article, but then they'll link to, to very in-depth discussion. Yeah, I agree. That's a great one. I also read Brian Krebs, the cybersecurity blogger's blog, Krebs on Security. I read uh, dark reading, um, but I think uh, one of the key things for me, Audrey, is to be active in my professional group on these issues. So I'm, I'm on the International Bar Association Cyber Task Force, and I uh, will be the new co-chair of the Cyber Crime Committee of the International Bar Association. So This is a chance to learn from others and to share what I've learned um, from a technical or legal standpoint about these issues. When you're forced to you know, lead programs to speak on these issues, that's whenever you, you, know, you tend to learn the most because you're soaking it up to be able to advise your clients or to give the presentation. So I would highly encourage your listeners to find whatever professional group in whatever uh, industry they're in or sector, there's going to be a cyber and or privacy group within that sector that they can be part of. And if they're active in it, they'll stay on top of the issues. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it.
My guests today were Jim Passore and Luke Dembowski, data privacy and cybersecurity partners at the law firm De Beauvoise and Clinton that counts 700 lawyers in seven countries. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for future episodes of Brand and New, a podcast from the International Trademark Association. If you liked this episode and think someone else would too, please share it. And to learn more about INTA, please visit INTA.org.